Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, you've made it to August the 28th. Tomorrow, school starts. Some of you are rejoicing. Life is about to get better. Some of you are weeping. You're going to lose your children to middle school for the very first time. Some of you had no idea school was starting tomorrow, and it matters not one little bit. But here you are, and I'm glad to see you gathered this morning in this place. Uh, A word of announcement before we begin, and that is that uh, Nathan McGahee has uh, been uh, called to serve as our student director, and he will start in just a couple of days. He and Annabeth were with us in the first service. I don't see them in the second, so uh, we welcome them, and I wanted you to know that. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy. We're going to be looking together at verses of chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now we're looking together at how believers can steward life well in a culture that is rapidly changing, increasingly hostile, and showing signs of coming apart. A steward, of course, is someone who manages, who cares for, who uses the property of another according to the owner's design and desire. Faithful stewardship understands the difference between stewardship and ownership and doesn't cross the line, but honors the design and the desire of the owner. Faithful followers of Jesus understand this. And in fact, part of our calling as followers of Jesus is to see ourselves as stewards of everything and everyone that he has placed within our care or within our reach. Our calling is to take all that he's put within our reach and manage it, care for it, and use it according to his design and his desire. And of all the things that God has given to those who are his people, there is nothing more significant, more important, apart from the gift of his son on the cross for us than the gift of truth. Nowhere is our stewardship more important than in the matter of truth. And this is the point that Paul makes in our passage for the morning, 1 Timothy 3, 14, 15, and 16. Let's read that together, shall we? Paul's writing and he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Pause. We said that behavior here is a reference to lifestyle, how one must or might 
conduct himself or herself in or as part of the household of God, which Paul says is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, as we saw last week, Paul is writing to the younger pastor, Timothy, giving him instructions for helping the church in the city of Ephesus. This is a church that's experiencing pressure, pressure regarding the truth, the truth that they've found in Jesus. And the pressure is to abandon or compromise that truth. It's coming from two places. It's coming from the culture on the outside. It is also coming from from false teachers on the inside. And our passage shows why Paul's letter has such an urgency about it. And he tells us why he writes it. He says, I, I want to be there with you. I want to return. I want to help promote and I want to help protect your faith and your witness in this world. But I can't. And so I'm writing because I want to show you, Timothy, and then I want you to show the Ephesian church how faith and witness can be both presented and preserved in a pressurized world. It's by living consistently, he ultimately shows us, in a community with others in something called the church. So, Paul reminds believers of the basics of what the church truly is in the first half of verse 15, what a church does with the truth at the uh, last half of verse 15, and finally he points to what the truth is that a true church uses in times of pressure and in other times in verse 16. We looked at verses 15, uh, A and B. We're going to be looking at verse 16 today, but let's do a quick review. Paul says, as the church of Jesus Christ, believers are not only God's household, brothers and sisters in Christ, part of God's family, but they are also God's church or God's assembly, that, that, that group of people that regularly gather to meet and worship him as the living God. We said that part of what Paul is conveying here is, is he's reminding them that every time they gather together in the name of Jesus as God's family, God in Christ meets them. And we said, he is here. And I would say to you again this morning, he is here. He is here. And as we spend time together in his word, my prayer is that, that uh, you will find him engaging you, that you will find him nudging you, that you will find him uh, uh, speaking directly to you, convict, convicting you, encouraging you, challenging you where you need to be challenged because he is here. He is here. He's here in a way that he is not. In other circumstances and situations, he's here. He loves to meet his people when they gather. There's a third thing, though, that Paul says. He says the church is also the pillar and buttress of the truth. And he's reminding the church at Ephesus that they're actually in Ephesus and they're called to form the pillar of truth, a, a pillar that lifts high the truth of God in Jesus, that presents and promotes that truth again and again, not just to the, the city, but also to each other. That part of coming together on a regular basis is lifting high the truth, presenting it, promoting it, reminding each other, and reminding the world. They're also the buttress of truth. 
that buttress of truth reinforces and protects the truth inside and outside the church. But Paul's overarching point is this, simply that truth matters. And that truth matters because beliefs drive behaviors and determine destinies. Truth matters. Belief drives behaviors and determines destinies. And because the truth matters, it needs to be stewarded well. It needs to be managed well. It needs to be cared for well. It needs to be used well. This we've seen, and this is the case we've made. But there's one more thing that I want you to see and I want you to understand. Something that's vital for us and for all believers who want to live faithfully and steward their lives well under pressure. And that is, we find it in verse 16, what the truth is that a true church uses. This truth is described for us here. You'll notice with me immediately after Paul calls the church the pillar and buttress of the truth, he pauses. And he breaks out with an exclamation, as sometimes he does in his writings. You'll find him doing this, for example, at the end of Romans 11, before he gets to Romans 12. He's writing, he's rejoicing in who God is and what God's done in Christ. And suddenly he'll just stop and he'll just exclaim, or he'll just go into a, a, a time of praise. And that's exactly what he's doing in verse 16. He uh, says, he's moved by a profound truth that God has revealed about himself. And he says, verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The new life, he's saying, that believers have with its new behavior or lifestyle of devotion to God instead of self, of obedience to God instead of obedience to others. This godliness has behind it a great mystery that has now been solved. The truth about God or the truth of God about the way things really are and the way things really will be that has and was for generations been a great mystery has now been made known and is now for Paul a great wonder. And so Paul is pausing and he's writing and he's saying, we are the, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. He can't help himself but pause and remember that what was once a mystery for him has now been made perfectly clear. He understands the mystery of God's truth as it's been finally revealed, but he's never gotten over the wonder of what it means. And as he steps back and as he looks, he finds himself lost in wonder. And wanting to stir up the same remembering of the truth that he's doing in the moment. And wanting to stir up and share that same deep emotion of wonder he's feeling. He gathers up the lines of an ancient hymn familiar to Timothy and the Ephesians. And he repeats it here. It's a hymn about Jesus. I'm imagining that the impact would be similar if I were suddenly to pause and quote or sing Amazing Grace. Immediately you would connect with it. Immediately you would begin to resonate with it. If you have um, a background in the Christian faith, you love that. It's your story. It's part of your testimony. It's part of your own declaration. That's what Paul is doing here. There's a hymn about Jesus, an ancient hymn. And this is what he says. He, do you see it? Verse 16. He, the son of God, was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. 
Paul says that the mystery and the wonder of the truth that God has given are captured in this, that first Christ appeared, the Son of God came in his incarnation, taking on human flesh. He was God doing what no one ever expected a God to do, any God, anywhere, anytime, that God would come and be where we are and take on our very existence. He appeared, then he was vindicated, Paul says, the old hymn says, by the Spirit. In other words, Christ was proved to be who he claimed to be, proved to be worthy of trust as the saving Son of God by his very own resurrection from the dead. Consequently, Paul says he was seen by angels or observed and worshiped by them as they too finally understood what the Father had been doing all along. The angels lived longing to find out and to know what God the Father had been up to all those millennia before Christ came. They wondered because none of it made clear sense what he was doing. But when Jesus came, it all made sense. And the angels watching worshiped. Furthermore, the scripture says, Paul says, this old hymn says, Christ was proclaimed among the nations or non-Jews, the Gentiles, showing that his coming had a universal intent. He didn't just come for the Jews, he came for the world. God came in Jesus because God so loved the world. And the proclaimed Christ became the received Christ as he was, Paul says, believed on in the world so that those who received him became sons and daughters of God, members of his household, part of that great assembly, part of the pillar and buttress of the truth. But ultimately, he says, the received Christ became the ascended Christ as he was taken up in glory. And he is now at the right hand of the Father in a place of power. And he's waiting in both power and glory to return with power and glory for those who are his and to begin the final restoration of all things. There you go. There you go. Now I want to ask you a question. What is Paul doing? Look at verse 16. What is he doing? Ah, the more astute among you, which is, you know, 99%. Oh, astute means just, you know, insightful. You're all astute, you're all all insightful. Every single one of you would say this. Ah, I know what he's doing. I see what he's doing. He's celebrating the only truth that can change our hearts and transform our behaviors and our destinies. He's celebrating the truth of the gospel. He wants Timothy and the Ephesians and you and me to celebrate with him. That's what he's doing. And I would say, you know what? You are absolutely right. That's what he's doing. That's what he's inviting us to. But he's doing something more here. That something more is vital for every believer to see and understand in every generation and especially in every season of pressure that comes. And we need to see it in 2022. Paul is declaring the truth. He's using a story to do it. 
It's not just any story. He's telling the heart of the one true story of reality, the way things really are. He's telling the climax of God's story of the world that explains how things begin and how things are going to end and everything that matters in between. And by telling God's story, he's giving God's answers to those universal human questions we all need to make sense of our lives. Those questions are questions that matter. We desperately need answers to these questions. Life cannot make sense, will not make sense without answers to these questions. What are they? How did things begin first? Where did everything come from? Why is this all here? And what is ultimate reality like? Is there a God or gods or not? Secondly, where did things go wrong? We all have an innate sense that things are not as they should be, could be, aren't as easily fixed as we want them to be. We all have an innate sense that something's wrong with us. We definitely know there's something wrong with everybody else. But when we get really, really honest, we'll go on and admit as well, something's wrong with me. And every single one of us has found something wrong with me that we cannot fix. And we've tried and we've tried and we've tried. We've scheduled, we've tried to discipline ourselves, we've been to therapy, we've been to counseling, we've done this, we've done that. We've tried and we've tried and we've tried and there's something broken in us that just keeps surfacing. And we wanna know, what is the problem? What is the problem? Where did things go wrong? Thirdly, we want to know how can our problem be solved? And essentially what we're doing is we're saying, who can save us? What will save us? Can science save us? Can technology save us? Who can save us? And finally, what will the world be like when the problem is solved? Where is this all heading? That's an interesting thing when you think about it. God's people in the Old Testament came to have some fairly straightforward answers to each of these questions except one, the third one. They knew God to be the ultimate reality and the creator. They knew that they and everything else were created for him. They had that one pretty much down. They knew that the fall was the source of the brokenness we humans see everywhere in our lives and in our world. And they knew that God had promised one day to restore his people in all creation to undo the damage of the fall but what they didn't know exactly was how he was going to do this, how he would solve the problem of our brokenness. Now, there were some strong hints and some tantalizing pictures of one who was to come bringing healing and making all things new. But they didn't know just how a holy God would pull off such a thing when we humans had such a long record of deep brokenness and sin and evil. This was the great mystery Paul speaks of here. The mystery long pondered and looked into by God's people and the angels from the beginning. And this was the source of the wonder Paul expresses. God himself came in Jesus. He was the missing piece to the greater story of how things began and where things went wrong and how it was going to be fixed and how it would all end. And so the reason that Paul breaks into this exclamation is because he knows, he 
knows all the truth that humanity needs to know and to live and live well is found right here. Jesus Christ was and Jesus is God's mysterious how. How will he fix it? The answer, Jesus. Now let me ask you a question, a second question if I may. Didn't the Ephesians know and believe all of this already? Yes, they did. Of course they did. How else could call call them the household of faith or the assembly of the living God if they didn't already know these things? So why is Paul going over all of this again? Why is he repeating himself? Why is he reminding them of something they already know? It's because he knows that the pressures on the beliefs of the Ephesians coming at them from the culture outside and coming at them from false teachers inside, he knows that those pressures come in the forms of other truths, other views of the world, other stories that offer alternative explanations and answers to the questions we ask. He knows that there is always the danger that they will compromise the one true story by adding parts of others to it by trying to amend it so that they could behave in ways that are more acceptable to the people around them or so that they could claim the name of Christ while living a lifestyle that the true faith doesn't permit. It's been this way since the very beginning. If you go to Genesis 3, what you'll see is the beginning of the competition between two basic stories. Do you remember Genesis 3 in the fall? Adam and Eve are in the garden. Satan comes to Eve and says, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree? He's challenging the original story. The original story is God said, you can eat of any tree, have all that you like. There's just one tree, don't touch it. That tree will lead to death. Here's the story. I'm your creator, I love you. I'm, I'm ready to give you the gift and I'm giving you the gift of relationship. I'm giving you the gift of fellowship. I'm giving you the gift of stewardship over all of this. You are mine, I am yours. We're going to spend eternity if you will follow this one guideline. We're gonna spend it together. Don't touch the one tree. You didn't need 10 commandments, you just have one. The very first thing Satan does in the garden is he tries to change God's story. Here's the way to life, God said. It's in relationship, fellowship, and stewardship with me. This this is why I created you. Did God really say you can't eat of any trees? What is he doing immediately? He's changing the story. He's moving God to the the, uh, margins. He's making God look as if he's something he's not. He's changing the story. He's not denying there's a God. He's just saying that God is not what he says he is. Eve, she's she's got her story right. Eve says, no, 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 no. He didn't say we couldn't eat from any tree. He said we should only avoid this one tree. Satan comes back and he adjusts his story again. It's so very attractive. He says, no, 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 no. Look, God knows. It's not true. God knows that if you partake of that tree, you're going to be 
become wise. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. And watch this. You, this is critical, you will become like God. Two stories. The first original story of God about how things should begin, how things will end, and ultimately what matters in between had God at the very center all the way through. Life was about him. Creation was for him. Life came from him. Joy came from him. Fellowship, relationship, all those things came from him. That's the first story. The second story is this. If you really want to live, if you really want to know joy, get free of God. Put yourself in the center and then you'll really live. Every other story after that point is simply a riff off of that original false story. Every religion but the, but, but the Christian faith has some form of works righteousness about it. Do this and God will approve. Do this and you will be saved. Do this and you will enter into a higher realm of life the next time you come around. Every single one is a riff on this original story. I call this the big lie. Put yourself in the center and you will live. Put God in the center, you'll die. You'll never reach your potential. Put yourself in the center. I want to say to you this morning that the danger of amending, abandoning, restructuring, changing, redefining God is no different for us in 2022 than it was for the Ephesians. You and I must understand that we, our friends, lost and found, our families and our churches are in the throes of a battle over truth, over what is true and where truth can be found. And when you see the push for the celebration and the acceptance of everything from LGBTQ lifestyles, gay marriage, transgenderism, the redefinition of gender, abortion rights, and so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion, when you see that, you are witnessing a view or views of truth that are being presented and promoted in the form of stories that promise or claim we will show you how things begin, how things will end, and ultimately what matters in between. The effort behind the push is to cause people to adopt or adapt their behavior by encouraging and increasingly enforcing a change in beliefs about what is true. And the push comes in the form of stories that like God's story, answer these fundamental questions of life. And I want you to see with me and I want you to understand every ideology, every religious expression, every declaration that science can be believed and, and has all the answers for the life we need without God comes with a version of ultimate truth and its own story of reality. And you and I live in a cultural moment where this battle over truth is being taken to a whole new level. You see it and you see it everywhere. It's not new. It started in Genesis 3. But it has gone to a whole new level. It shows up on bumper stickers in Disney's kids programming and your neighbor's yard signs. And behind all of these are claims about ultimate truth and stories that seek to explain how things began, how things are going to, to end, and everything that matters in between. 
Have you seen the yard signs? How many of you know immediately what I'm talking about? In this house, we believe. How many of you have seen those? In this house? Okay, yeah. The sign goes on to make five or six claims about what is true, and they vary from sign to sign. They're not all the same, but the one I've seen most often says, black lives matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. These are all statements of belief that come from a story about reality and a particular view of the world and the way things really are and the way things ought to be. They form a kind of all-in-one package deal of moral beliefs. They're the same sort of creed that you would expect from uh, religious groups, except that many who hold these beliefs, these doctrines, if you will, don't see a need for God or gods at all. They've decided these things are true for themselves. But what makes these statements powerful is that each has an element of truth in it. And the truth is taken largely from the history and heritage of Christianity that still remains in our culture. While each claim does have a part of the truth, each of them has an element also of an er error. And every single one of them has to be detangled and examined in light of the gospel story. Now, I'm getting ready to do something that's really, really dangerous, and this is going to make you really, really excited. I'm going to have your full attention for the next, I don't know, five, ten minutes, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to start this way, because I'm going to deal with a particular subject right now and process it through the gospel. So I'm going to say to you right here, right now, I want you to park your politics, park them, put them away. I don't want them in this room right now. If you brought them in with you, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you next time you come in, leave them in your car, bring your Bible, but leave your politics in the car. I'm just saying, I wish I had a politics meter where I could just scan you before you come in and say, buddy, you need to park those politics before you come in. But I, I don't have it. But anyway, I'm telling you right now, I need for you to park your politics. All right, here we go. Are you ready? This is going to be exciting. I'll be glad when this sermon is done. All right, here we go. So all of these truths that are given to us, they, they need to be detangled. They need to be examined in the light of the gospel story. So let me use the very first one, Black Lives Matter, for example. Here we go. There's truth here. There are some who want immediately to counter that and say, no, all lives matter. But there is truth there too. When we see this statement through the lens of the scripture and with an understanding of our cultural background, we have to say something different from uh, black lives matter or all lives matter. The reality is this, that part of our cultural heritage and history includes a long stretch of time where our nation denied that black lives had value with slavery and with segregation. And that was wrong and contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
At the same time, we've got to also acknowledge that poor or working class persons haven't always been treated justly or fairly by those with means and resources. We've got to go on and confess that unborn babies have been denied the right to birth, denied the right to life. And this is what God calls oppression. This is what God calls injustice. And God hates those things because God loves people and God loves justice. You say, I never heard that before. Well, it's all in the book. Look it up. But faithful, gospel-centered Christians will always look at these things and live their lives by the gospel story and gospel truth. And that means faithful followers of Jesus will affirm the value of black lives and of all lives, but not because some sign in somebody's yard told me I should believe that, not because some HR department said I had to say that, not because I've gotten pressure from somebody higher up who is among the academic elite says that I need to believe that they are not the measure of my morality, they are not the measure of my values, they do not give me my perspective of life, Only one has the right to do that for me as a follower of Jesus. So if I'm going to say black lives matter, I'm going to affirm that, but but what I'm going to do is I'm going to say it the right way and I'm going to say black lives matter to Jesus. The reason black lives matter is because they matter to Jesus. Jesus gets to decide. I don't get to decide who matters. You don't get to decide who matters. Jesus gets to decide who matters. I want to remind you that at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given to the church, there were people at Pentecost from Europe, yes, from the Middle East, yes, and from Africa. I want to remind you that the Ethiopian eunuch, when he met Philip, was black. He came to saving knowledge and faith in Jesus, and God loved him every bit as much as he ever loved Philip. So we believers will say again and again, all lives matter because all lives matter to Jesus, white and black and Hispanic and Asian, the elderly and the unborn, all were made in the image of God. All persons are loved by the God who sent his son so that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. You say the pastor's done gone woke. You're right, I have. I've gone woke on Jesus. I cannot, I cannot, I cannot abandon the gospel. I cannot abandon the truth. Everything else is a lie. Everything else is a distortion. It's only in Jesus that I'm able to see clearly, live well. Only in Christ. So I want you to remember 
We live in the midst of a great battle over truth. And it is ultimately a battle for the minds and the hearts, the direction and the destiny of people. Truth matters. God's truth matters. For God's truth alone meets the demands of reality and real life. God's truth matters because what we believe by God's design determines life here and our eternal destinies hereafter. In 2022, we've got to remind ourselves and we must teach our children. We must teach our children that true Christianity is anchored in the great mystery and wonder of godliness. His name is Jesus. Christianity is more than a belief. It is more than a moral code. It is more than religious services and ceremonies. It's more than a personal relationship. Christianity is a life lived in fellowship and stewardship with the living God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a life lived imitating his son and obeying him as Lord. It's a life begun by entering into God's story at his invitation. It's a life lived continually by pressing on with God's story, making his story our story. The calling of the Christian life is to continually be finding ways to take God's story and align our lives with that story so that we're constantly fitting into what God is doing, not trying to fit God into what we are doing. This life is a life lived inviting others to join us in God's true story of how the world began, how it's going to end, and what matters most in between. I want to say to you, we we Christians will always face pressure because we will never fit in. We will always be peculiar. We will always be particular. We will always, as I told you last week, we will always be weird. We will always face pressure because we know there's only one savior of humanity. We will always face pressure because we call it a lie that some other savior, human or technological, can, say, can help us. And in this world of competing truths and stories, we've got to stay informed. We need to know what the other stories are, the truths that they claim the stories that they tell, the way that they tell them. We've got to stay informed by them without giving in to them so that we can give an answer for the hope that we have to our children as well as our world. I want to say this. Don't be afraid as a Christian to use your mind. Don't let others tell you that your Christian faith is not something that has any anchor in reason, is unreasonable, and cannot be true. Use your own mind. Take God's truth. Understand the other story. You will find God's story stands. I'm not afraid for you to ask questions. I'm not afraid for you to think. 
But do understand that the church of Jesus Christ is not without resources to answer the issues that are constantly being thrown up in our faces. We have answers, but you have to be informed and ready to engage them. We will face pressure. We've got to stay informed. We've also got to know our own story. We've got to know God's gospel story. We've got to know his truth well. We've got to keep it straight, make it personal, make it public, and accept no substitutes for it. We've got to determine to know and live by God's truth as his people. We've got to show our children in the world that the truth we believe, the gospel truth of Jesus, it alone brings life and freedom. Moms and dads, the only way you're going to show your kids that the Christian faith brings life and freedom is to live and be free in Christ. Practice what you're teaching your children. We must help them to see and understand that true happiness is found in finding and living for him who made us and is remaking us. It's never found in living for ourselves. You and I are the persistent resistance. We live in occupied territory. Our job where we are is to keep the truth and the picture of the true story held high and preserved and protected. Our responsibility is to live our lives as a people waiting for the true king who will one day return. And while we're here, our high calling is to have some yard signs of our own that read loudly and clearly. In this house, we believe the very Son of God was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, preached on in the world, believed on and taken up in glory. He is the beginning. He is the ending. And he is what is most important in the middle. And there is nothing like the wonder of finding and knowing and serving and loving him who is the center of all things, Jesus.
Don't give in. Don't you dare compromise. If you're a follower of Jesus, listen to me. You stand. On the day when it mattered most, he stood for you at Calvary. You stand. Father, we we acknowledge you this this morning as the creator of all things, owner of all things. We are here because you willed it so. We are here because you made it so. We are here because you sustain us. We are here because of you. We acknowledge and confess, Father, we are part of the problem. We're in a problem. We're in a crisis, but we're part of that crisis. We're part of the problem because we swapped stories. We swapped your truth for a lie. We confess, Lord God, that we find ourselves constantly in trouble when we mess with your story, when we fail to keep it straight, when we make additions and corrections to suit others or to suit ourselves, to make life easier, to more comfortable. Forgive us. Almighty God, you've given us a Savior. We didn't deserve him. Our hearts are filled with wonder when we recognize and realize and reflect that he has come. When we see and remember what he has done. And so we tell ourselves the gospel story again and again and again so that we might love it more, understand it better, go deeper and then go wide with it. God, make that true of us. It gives us strength for today, but Father, the the grand promise that hovers over us is that one day he's coming soon and that gives us hope for tomorrow. Grant God, dear Father, that you would find us living here faithfully with our eyes set, watching for his return. Grant, Lord God, that when he comes, he will find us faithful, standing steadfast, even under pressure. Show us, Lord God, in the days ahead how to engage what we face with gospel tools. Instead of retreating, Lord God, give us the courage to advance, knowing and believing that the gospel is your power for salvation, a news that not everyone wants to hear, but news that everyone needs to hear and news that some are ready to hear. Lord God, grant that that would be so for us. Above all, Lord, 
increase our love for Jesus. And may we, like Paul, find great wonder in his coming. And in his coming again, for Jesus' sake. To all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.